This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Short History of England by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 17 The Return of the Barbarian. The only way to write a popular history, as we have already remarked, would be to write it backwards. It would be to take common objects of our own street and tell the tale of how each of them came to be in the street at all. And for my immediate purpose, it's really convenient to take two objects we have known all our lives as features of fashion or respectability. One which has grown rarer recently is what we call a top hat. The other, which is still a customary formality, is a pair of trousers. The history of these humorous objects really does give a clue to what has happened in England for the last hundred years. It's not necessary to be an aesthete in order to regard both objects as the reverse of beautiful, as tested by what may be called the rational side of beauty. The lines of human limbs can be beautiful, and so can the lines of loose drapery, but not cylinders too loose to be the first and too tight to be the second. Nor is a subtle sense of harmony needed to see that while there are hundreds of differently proportioned hats, a hat that actually grows larger toward the top is somewhat top-heavy. But what is largely forgotten is this, that these two fantastic objects, which now strike the eye as unconscious freaks, were originally conscious freaks. Our ancestors, to do them justice, did not think them casual or commonplace. They thought them, if not ridiculous, at least rococo. The top hat was the topmost point of a riot of Regency dandyism, and bucks wore trousers while businessmen were still wearing knee breeches. It will not be fanciful to see a certain oriental touch in trousers, which the later Romans also regarded as effeminately oriental. It was an oriental touch found in many florid things of the time, in Byron's poems or Brighton Pavilion. Now the interesting point is that for a whole serious century these instantaneous fantasies have remained like fossils. In the carnival of the Regency a few fools got into fancy dress, and we have all remained in fancy dress. At least we have remained in the dress, though we have lost the fancy. I say this is typical of the most important thing that happened in the Victorian time. For the most important thing was that nothing happened. The very fuss that was made about minor modification brings into relief the rigidity with which the main lines of social life were left as they were at the French Revolution. We talk of the French Revolution as something that changed the world, but its most important relation to England is that it did not change England. A student of our history is concerned rather with the effect it did not have than the effect it did. If it be a splendid fate to have survived the flood, the English oligarchy had that added splendor. But even for the countries in which the revolution was a convulsion, it was the last convulsion until that which shakes the world today. It gave their character to all the commonwealths which all talked about progress and were occupied in marking time. 
Frenchmen, under all superficial reactions, remained republican in spirit, as they had been when they first wore top hats. Englishmen, under all superficial reforms, remained oligarchical in spirit, as they had been when they first wore trousers. Only one power might be said to be growing, and that in a plodding and prosaic fashion. The power in the northeast, whose name was Prussia. And the English were more and more learning that this growth need cause them no alarm, since the North Germans were their cousins in blood and their brothers in spirit. The first thing to note then about the nineteenth century is that Europe remained herself as compared with the Europe of the Great War, and that England especially remained herself as compared even with the rest of Europe. Granted this, we may give their proper importance to the cautious internal changes of this country, the small conscious and the large unconscious changes. Most of the conscious ones were much upon the model of an early one, the Great Reform Bill of 1832, and can be considered in the light of it. First, from the standpoint of most real reformers, the chief thing about the Reform Bill was that it did not reform. It had a huge tide of popular enthusiasm behind it, which wholly disappeared when the people found themselves in front of it. It enfranchised large masses of the middle classes. It disfranchised very definite bodies of the working classes. And it so struck the balance between the conservative and the dangerous elements in the commonwealth that the governing class was rather stronger than before. The date, however, is important, not at all because it was the beginning of democracy, but because it was the beginning of the best way ever discovered of evading and postponing democracy. Here enters the homeopathic treatment of revolution, since so often successful. Well into the next generation, Disraeli, the brilliant Jewish adventurer, who was the symbol of the English aristocracy being no longer genuine, extended the franchise to the artisans, partly indeed as a party move against his great rival Gladstone, but more as the method by which the old popular pressure was first tired out and then toned down. The politicians said the working class was now strong enough to be allowed votes. It would be truer to say it was now weak enough to be allowed votes. So in more recent times, payment of members, which would once have been regarded and resisted as an inrush of popular forces, was passed quietly and without resistance, and regarded merely as an extension of parliamentary privileges. The truth is that the old parliamentary oligarchy abandoned their first line of trenches because they had by that time constructed a second line of defense. It consisted in the concentration of colossal political funds in the private and irresponsible power of the politicians, collected by the sale of peerages and more important things, and expended on the gerrymandering of the enormously expensive elections. In the presence of this inner obstacle, a vote became about as valuable as a railway ticket when there is a permanent block on the line. The facade and outward form of this new secret government is the merely mechanical application of what is called the party system. The party system does not consist, as some suppose, of two parties, but of one. If there were two real parties, there could be no system. But if this was the evolution of parliamentary reform, as represented by the first reform bill, we can see the other side of it, 
in the social reform attacked immediately after the first reform bill. It is a truth that should be a tower and a landmark that one of the first things done by the reform parliament was to establish those harsh and dehumanized workhouses which both honest radicals and honest Tories branded with the black title of the new Bastille. This bitter name lingers in our literature and can be found by the curious in works of Carlyle and Hood. But it is doubtless interesting, rather as a note of contemporary indignation than as a correct comparison. It is easy to imagine the logicians and legal orators of the parliamentary school of progress finding many points of differentiation and even of contrast. The Bastille was one central institution, the workhouses, have been many and have everywhere transformed local life with whatever they have to give of social sympathy and inspiration. Men of high rank and great wealth were frequently sent to the Bastille, but no such mistake has ever been made by the more business administration of the workhouse. Over the most capricious operations of the letters de cachet, there still hovered some hazy traditional idea that a man is put in prison to punish him for something. It was the discovery of a later social science that men who cannot be punished can still be imprisoned. But the deepest and most decisive difference lies in the better fortune of the new Bastille, for no mob has ever dared to storm it, and it never fell. The new poor law was indeed not wholly new in the sense that it was the culmination and clear enunciation of a principle foreshadowed in the earlier poor law of Elizabeth, which was one of the many anti-popular effects of the great pillage. When the monasteries were swept away and the medieval system of hospitality destroyed, tramps and beggars became a problem, the solution of which has always tended towards slavery even when the question of slavery has been cleared of the irrelevant question of cruelty. It is obvious that a desperate man might find Mr. Bumble and the Board of Guardians less cruel than cold weather and the bare ground, even if he were allowed to sleep on the ground, which, by a veritable nightmare of nonsense and injustice, he is not. He is actually punished for sleeping under a bush on the specific and stated ground that he cannot afford a bed. It is obvious, however, that he may find his best physical good by going into the workhouse, as he often found it in pagan times by selling himself into slavery. The point is that the solution remains servile, even when Mr. Bumble and the Board of Guardians cease to be, in a common sense, cruel. The pagan might have the luck to sell himself to a kind master, the principle of the new poor law which has so far proved permanent in our society is that the man lost all his civic rights and lost them solely through poverty. There is a touch of irony, though hardly of mere hypocrisy, in the fact that the parliament which effected this reform had just been abolishing black slavery by buying out the slave owners in the British colonies. The slave owners were bought out at a price big enough to be called blackmail, but it would be misunderstanding the national mentality to deny the sincerity of the sentiment. Wilberforce, represented in this 
the real wave of Wesleyan religion, which had made a humane reaction against Calvinism, and was in no mean sense philanthropic. But there is something romantic in the English mind, which can always see what is remote. It is the strongest example of what men lose by being long-sighted. It is fair to say that they gain many things also. The poems that are like adventures, and the adventures that are like poems. It is a national savour, and therefore in itself neither good nor evil, and it depends on the application whether we find a scriptural text for it, in the wish to take the wings of the morning and abide in the outermost parts of the sea, or merely in the saying that the eyes of a fool are in the ends of the earth. Anyhow, the unconscious nineteenth-century movement, so slow that it seemed stationary, was altogether in this direction, of which workhouse philanthropy is the type. Nevertheless, it had one national institution to combat and overcome, one institution all the more intensely national because it was not official, and in a sense not even political. The modern trade union was the inspiration and creation of the English. It is still largely known throughout Europe by its English name. It was the English expression of the European effort to resist the tendency of capitalism to reach its natural culmination in slavery. In this it has an almost weird psychological interest, for it is a return to the past by men ignorant of the past, like the subconscious action of some man who has lost his memory. We say that history repeats itself, and it is even more interesting when it unconsciously repeats itself. No man on earth is kept so ignorant of the Middle Ages as the British workman, except perhaps the British businessman who employs him. Yet all who know even a little of the Middle Ages can see that the modern trade union is a groping for the ancient guild. It is true that those who look to the trade union, and even those clear-sighted enough to call it a guild, are often without the faintest tinge of medieval mysticism, or even of medieval morality. But this fact is in itself the most striking and even staggering tribute to medieval morality. It has all the clinching logic of coincidence. If large numbers of the most hard-headed atheists had evolved out of their own inner consciousness the notion that a number of bachelors or spinsters ought to live together in celibate groups for the good of the poor, or the observation of certain hours and offices, it would be a very strong point in favor of the monasteries. It would be all the stronger if the atheist had never heard of monasteries. It would be strongest of all if they hated the very name of monasteries. And it is all the stronger because the man who puts his trust in trades unions does not call himself a Catholic or even a Christian, if he does call himself a guild socialist. The trade union movement passed through many perils, including a ludicrous attempt of certain lawyers to condemn as criminal conspiracy that trade union solidarity, of which their own profession is the strongest and most startling example in the world. The struggle culminated in gigantic strikes which split the country in every direction in the earlier part of the twentieth century. But another process, with much more power at its back, was also in operation. The principle represented by the new poor law proceeded on its course, 
and in one important respect altered its course, though it can hardly be said to have altered its object. It can most correctly be stated by saying that the employers themselves, who already organized business, began to organize social reform. It was more picturesquely expressed by a cynical aristocrat in Parliament who said, We are all socialists now. The socialists, a body of completely sincere men, led by several conspicuously brilliant men, had long hammered into men's heads the hopeless sterility of mere non-interference in exchange. The socialists proposed that the state should not merely interfere in business, but should take over the business and pay all men as equal wage earners, or at any rate as wage earners. The employers were not willing to surrender their own position to the state, and this project has largely faded from politics. The wiser of them were willing to pay better wages, and they were especially willing to bestow various other benefits so long as they were bestowed after the manner of wages. Thus we had a series of social reforms which, for good or evil, all tended in the same direction. The permission to employees to claim certain advantages as employees, and as something permanently different from employers. Of these, the obvious examples were employers' liability, old age pensions, and, as marking another and more decisive stride in the process, the Insurance Act. The latter, in particular, and the whole plan of the social reform in general, were modelled upon Germany. Indeed, the whole English life of this period was overshadowed by Germany. We had now reached, for good or evil, the final fulfilment of that gathering influence which began to grow on us in the seventeenth century, which was solidified by the military alliances of the eighteenth century, and which, in the nineteenth century, had been turned into a philosophy not to say a mythology. German metaphysics had thinned our theology, so that many a man's most solemn conviction about Good Friday was that Friday was named after Freya. German history had simply annexed English history, so that it was almost counted the duty of any patriotic Englishman to be proud of being a German. The genius of Carlyle, the culture preached by Matthew Arnold, would not, persuasive as they were, have alone produced this effect, but for an external phenomena of great force. Our internal policy was transformed by our foreign policy, and foreign policy was dominated by the more and more drastic steps which the Prussian, now clearly the prince of all the German tribes, was taking to extend the German influence in the world. Denmark was robbed of two provinces. France was robbed of two provinces, and though the fall of Paris was felt almost everywhere as the fall of the capital of civilization, a thing like the sacking of Rome by the Goths, many of the most influential people in England still saw nothing in it but the solid success of our kinsmen and old allies of Waterloo. The moral methods which achieved it, the juggling with the Augustenburg claim, the forgery of the Ems telegram, were either successfully concealed or were but cloudily appreciated. The higher criticism had entered into our ethics as well as our theology. Our view of Europe was also distorted and made disproportionate 
by the accident of a natural concern for Constantinople and our route to India, which led Palmerston and later premiers to support the Turk and see Russia as the only enemy. This somewhat cynical reaction was summed up in the strange figure of Disraeli, who made a pro-Turkish settlement full of his native indifference to the Christian subjects of Turkey and sealed it at Berlin in the presence of Bismarck. Disraeli was not without insight into the inconsistencies and illusions of the English. He said many sagacious things about them, and one especially when he told the Manchester School that their motto was peace and plenty amid a starving people and with the world in arms. But what he said about peace and plenty might well be parodied as a comment on what he himself said about peace with honor. Returning from that Berlin conference, he should have said, I bring you peace with honor, peace with the seeds of the most horrible war of history, and honor as the dupes and victims of the old bully in Berlin. But it was, as we have seen, especially in social reform, that Germany was believed to be leading the way and to have found the secret of dealing with the economic evil. In the case of insurance, which was a test case, she was applauded for obliging all her workmen to set apart a portion of their wages for any time of sickness and numerous other provisions, both in Germany and England, pursued the same ideal, which was that of protecting the poor against themselves. It everywhere involved an external power having a finger in the family pie, but little attention was paid to any friction thus caused. For all prejudices against the process were supposed to be the growth of ignorance, and that ignorance was already being attacked by what was called education, an enterprise also inspired largely by the example and partly by the commercial competition of Germany. It was pointed out that in Germany governments and great employers thought it well worth their while to apply the grandest scale of organization and the minutest inquisition of detail to the instruction of the whole German race. The government was the stronger for training its scholars as it trained its soldiers. The big businesses were the stronger for manufacturing mind as they manufactured material. English education was made compulsory. It was made free. Many good, earnest, and enthusiastic men labored to create a ladder of standards and examinations which would connect the cleverest of the poor with the culture of the English universities and the current teaching in history or philosophy. But it cannot be said that the connection was very complete, or the achievement so thorough as the German achievement. For whatever reason, the poor Englishman remained in many things, much as his fathers had been, and seemed to think the higher criticism, too high for him even to criticize. And then a day came, and if we were wise we thank God that we had failed. Education, if it had ever really been in question, would doubtless have been a noble gift. Education in the sense of the central tradition of history, with its freedom, its family honor, its chivalry, which is the flower of Christendom. But what would our populace in our epoch have actually learned if they had learned all that our schools and universities had to teach? That England was but a little branch on a large Teutonic tree, that an unfathomable spiritual sympathy, all encircling like the sea, had always made us 
the natural allies of the great folk by the flowing Rhine, that all light came from Luther and Lutheran Germany, whose science was still purging Christianity of its Greek and Roman accretions, that Germany was a forest fated to grow, that France was a dung-heap fated to decay, a dung-heap with a crowing cock on it. What would the ladder of education have led to except a platform on which a posturing professor proved that a cousin German was the same as a German cousin? What would the gutter snipe have learnt as a graduate except to embrace a Saxon because he was the other half of an Anglo-Saxon? The day came, and the ignorant fellow found he had other things to learn, and he was quicker than his educated countrymen, for he had nothing to unlearn. He, in whose honour all had been said and sung, stirred, and stepped across the border of Belgium. Then were spread out before men's eyes all the beauties of his culture and all the benefits of his organisation. Then we beheld, under a lifting daybreak, what light we had followed, and after what image we had laboured to refashion ourselves. Nor in any story of mankind has the irony of God chosen the foolish thing so catastrophically to confound the wise. For the common crowd of poor and ignorant Englishmen, because they only knew that they were Englishmen, burst through the filthy cobwebs of four hundred years, and stood where their fathers stood when they knew that they were Christian men. The English poor, broken in every revolt, bullied by every fashion, long despoiled of property, and now being despoiled of liberty, entered history with a noise of trumpets, and turned themselves in two years into one of the iron armies of the world. And when the critic of politics and literature, feeling that this war is after all heroic, looks around him to find the hero, he can point to nothing but a mob. End of chapter 17